You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. It is especially fortuitous that today's Global IQ Minute is with Robert Daly, since as we speak, President Trump is in Beijing for meetings with China's President Xi Jinping, a summit that China's ambassador to the United States describes as State Visit Plus. Mr. Daly is the director of the Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Few have his first-hand experience and knowledge developed from living in China for over 11 years. Prior to joining the Wilson Center, Robert served in the United States Foreign Service. His fluency in Mandarin is well demonstrated by the fact that he has interpreted for Jimmy Carter and Henry Kissinger, and if that wasn't enough, he also helped produce the Chinese language version of Sesame Street. Great to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me here. So going into this very important visit, what are the respective objectives of China and the United States? Their objectives are somewhat disparate. China has just finished its 19th Party Congress, which was the kickoff for Xi Jinping's second five-year term as China's premier leader. He's the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, and it looks like he may have that status as top leader now for the rest of his life. We'll have to see. How old is he? He is in his mid-60s, uh -huh. about 66, but appears to be in good health, and now at this 19th Party Congress, his thought, purported thought, Xi Jinping thought, was written into the party charter. That makes him the final arbiter of any major decision for the rest of his life, regardless of whether he gives up his titles going forward. So what he wants out of this visit is a highly ceremonial visit with good visuals for his domestic Chinese audience that shows him the most powerful leader in China since Mao Zedong as a respected, successful world leader. So that's a ceremonial goal, and China's very good at this. They're very good at staging performances of power. President Trump goes in with a really two-part agenda. One is North Korea, and he would like to push China to, as he's put it in the past, solve this for us. That's not gonna happen. He may get a few more promises to incrementally ramp up sanctions against North Korea, but China doesn't want the same end game that we want, so he won't get that. Going to China, he had also said that he wanted some movement on the trading relationship, but there are issues with the way he defines it, and Trump is going in without any specific asks. The Chinese are going to put in orders for a lot of Boeing planes and a lot of other American equipment, and it's supposed to come in at a very high price tag. But that doesn't change the structural problem in the relationship that Trump has talked about so much. So when the Chinese say state visit plus, what they mean is we think we can control this guy through flattery. The plus is a thicker, longer, wider red carpet than any American president has seen. Which we saw also in Saudi Arabia. Which we saw in Saudi Arabia, and this seems to work. The evidence so far is that the Chinese have his number on this. There's also a sense in which the visit to China isn't what's most important. What's going to matter most is what happens later. He's going to give a speech in Da Nang in Vietnam in which he may try to redefine America's role in the Asia Pacific in a way that's set up to counter China. And then the real question is when he gets back to the States, what does he do then? And can he get away from the Russia stories and everything else? And can he get away from the Russia stories? So I think that as we look at this meeting in Beijing, it's not just Americans and Chinese who are going to be doing a side-by-side -side comparison of Trump and Xi. The whole world is doing it. And I think that that's arguably the more important audience. What do other countries, leaders, and peoples make of this comparison given what they know about President Trump and the conclusions that people in many countries have reached, and given that they now know that China is risen, and that she is the most 
powerful leader it's had in a while. What do they make of this comparison? I think that matters more. I'm glad you brought up some of the business deals because I've read that perhaps announced up to $250 billion That's in, right. in deals. How do you balance that with the rhetoric that comes out of the White House now about unfair trade practices? They're going to be making more purchases from the United States. They make a lot of purchases from the United States anyway, and what they tend to do is if they know a president is coming, they'll hold off on making it and then they'll make fewer in the subsequent six or eight months. They package things for a visit. The issue in United States-China economic relations, first, it isn't really the trade deficit. President Trump has been focused on this, but very few economists agree with his notion that if we have a trading relationship such that you have a $1 surplus and I have a $1 deficit, that means that you've somehow beaten me to the tune of $1. Well, this isn't how trade works. Trade works because you offer certain goods that I buy at a price in which we both think we benefit. Furthermore, it's never part of the theory of trade that we should have balanced trade with every nation. Ideally, a nation would have balanced trade overall, and our trade isn't balanced overall. It's not a win-lose thing. And the real issue in U.S.-China economic relations is not so much trade, although that, that is concerning, but it's terms of investment. It's market access, it's reciprocity. And again, we don't know that Trump is going to make any asks along those lines. Ordering a bunch of airplanes doesn't change the structural problems. Again, it's really ceremonial, no matter how large the numbers involved are. A story that we're probably following more closely in Dallas than elsewhere is about Dallas-based company MoneyGram. Mm -hmm. They have found its sale to a Chinese company, Alibaba. As Alibaba and Financial, delayed by CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment in, for the United States. How do you see this evolving? And is there really, in your view, with these type of mergers and acquisitions, a true threat to the United States economic well, or we'll national Well, we'll be speaking security? tonight about what we should mean by threat. The answer to your question depends a lot on how we construe that. Alibaba is a nominally private Chinese company, fantastically successful. Should we regard purchases, mergers and acquisitions by Chinese private companies differently than those made by Chinese state-owned companies? I spoke with a senior Alibaba representative a few weeks ago mm -hmm. who was incensed by the delay in the MoneyGram bid through CFIUS. And I asked him, are you a private company? Yes, we're a private company. I said, if the government, Beijing, either asks Alibaba, Jack Ma, to take a certain action in the national interest or not to take a certain action in the national interest, what is Jack Ma going to do? He answered honestly, which Jack Ma is going to salute. That being true, should we treat private companies any differently? MoneyGram handles remittances and payments by Americans on military bases here and all over the world. Mm -hmm. Where that money goes can be analyzed through big data at which China excels because, among other things, it now has the world's fastest supercomputer. Therefore, know that if the Chinese government asks Alibaba to hand over that data, they'll do it. Now, Alibaba has said that that data will all be kept on servers here in the United States. Do we believe that that means that they don't have access to it? And so I think we have to ask, in a case like MoneyGram, why would we do it? Why would we sell to Alibaba? I think that to say that we should, you have to say that Alibaba is like any other company with deep pockets. 
Well, now we have the question of what do we know about the People's Republic of China and its goals vis-a-vis -vis the United States. So it's a tricky question. It's not an easy question. We saw just today that Senator Cornyn and Senator Feinstein have now published their new draft bill to reform CFIUS. Congressman Pittenger in the House has been working on this as well. And it's asking CFIUS to take a broader view of national security and a more skeptical view of foreign mergers and acquisitions, particularly with regards to China and what Senator Feinstein calls potentially adversarial nations. And interesting that Senator Cornyn's involved in this. And Senator yeah. Cornyn's involved in this as well. And so I've only seen a summary of the legislation. I'll have to look at the details. But we have to come at these issues with extreme skepticism. Let's turn to military matters and force projection. The United States and its allies were accustomed and comfortable with U.S. taking the lead. Right now you're seeing China being much more aggressive, yes. spending a lot more money. It's sort of reshaping the situation with Australia and Japan and yet they're in a sensitive situation because of their trade relations and the right. fact that it's in their neighborhood. So talk to us a bit about that. So China is in a bit of a bind. You've given a very good overview of China's position. It has been investing extensively and very, very intelligently in its force projecting capabilities in the Western Pacific. We still have far more hard power in the region right now. Aircraft carrier battle groups, Virginia-class nuclear submarines, other assets, Guam-based deep penetration bombers, all this stuff. But this only helps us to prevail at unspeakable cost in the instance of all-out war. It's proven to be meaningless in the face of China's very intelligent gradualism, what's called its salami slicing strategy, of taking small bites in the form of island building and other kinds of actions, which are assertive, but none of which is egregious enough to justify an American armed intervention. And so China has changed perceptions in that way. China has succeeded to a considerable extent. However, doing that has forced China also to show its hand in terms of its interest in being the top country in the Eastern Hemisphere. And they run a risk as they push for that because Japan can go nuclear at the drop of a hat. They've got the ability, they've already been processing American uranium. Public opinion in, in Japan is still very much against it. Public opinion is about 60% for it right now in South Korea, although how stable that is, we don't know. So if China pushes such that the American nuclear umbrella and guarantee to its allies doesn't seem credible, South Korea and Japan then become interested in their own nuclear defense vis-a-vis -vis not only China but North Korea. Taiwan has the ability to do this as well. If that happened and you say, well, look, China, Russia, Pakistan, and India, which already have nuclear weapons, have been members of the club. Now Japan and South Korea are members. What does this mean? It means that great Asian nations must have nuclear weapons. Well, Indonesia's next. So if China pushes too far, it creates a nuclear arms race in an area where there are still deep historical resentments and current competition. But China pushes too hard brings American power too much into question, it risks provoking a nuclear arms race that it does not want to see. So because China lives in a tough neighborhood, it's constrained both by geography and by the other countries well, of the region. You're listening to part one of my conversation with Robert Daly. To continue listening, look for part two. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. 
Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.